with greediness. Um, so very much uh, sensuality uh, goes along with the idea of vanity. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 5, verse 1. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty with your mouth or impulsive in your heart to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through abundant endeavor, the voice of a fool through abundant words. Just in passing, note that dream and the voice of a fool are parallel to each other and abundant abundant endeavor, much busyness, and abundant words are parallel together. We'll touch on that in another minute here. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. And do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and wreak destruction on the work of your hands? I wonder if uh, uh, any of you thought of the Apostle Peter here who said <laughs> rashly to the Lord, Lord, I'll follow you no matter what. I'll go to death uh, with you even though these other disciples won't. I will. And yet uh, that was a rash. His mouth was hasty to utter uh, that thing. And it reminds us that the spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. And that we need to guard our mouth, as simple as that. In many dreams and vanities are many words, rather fear God, uh, verse 7. Again, that goes back to verse 3. The the dreams uh, and the multitude of business and the fool's mouth and the multitude of uh, words, they're uh, a parallel that should be kept in mind. And add them to our uh, vanity uh, definition bin. Dreams and words. (laughs) Empty words is what we're talking about, of course. Verse 8, if you see oppression, again, back to the, remember we see many topics being visited over and over uh, in the Proverbs and in this book as well. If you see oppression of the poor and robbery of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be astonished over the matter. For a lofty one keeps watch over another lofty one, and there are loftier ones than they, perhaps going even to the uh, uh, angelic realms, the celestial messengers, which we know from Daniel, do have authority over uh, nations. But the advantage of the land in everything is this, a king committed to a cultivated field. I believe this is related to verse 8. I'm not sure I can make that connection for you. The ESV uh, makes note of the fact that this is a difficult verse uh, to translate. Um, The King James has, moreover, the profit of, of the field is for all. Even the king is served by the field. So, um... There you have it. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Beginning a a new uh, section here, I believe, 10 through 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its produce. This, too, is vanity. So another thing to add to uh, our definition. Uh, The love of silver and the love of abundance is a vanity. Paul uh, says, we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we'll carry nothing out. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the success to their masters except to look on with their eyes? The only pleasure you can get, once your uh, stomach is full, you have a clothing, there's nothing more you can enjoy except just to see it, right? That's something the the wealthy, uh, they have, 
won't deny it. And uh, but what is the what is the benefit? He's asking. The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the satisfaction of the rich man does not allow him to sleep, or the abundance, or the full stomach, in some versions, of the rich man doesn't allow him to sleep. Your sleepless night, worrying about keeping your wealth. 13, begins another section. There is a sickening evil, which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their master to his own evil demise. And those riches were lost through a bad endeavor. And he became the father of a son, but there was nothing in his hand for him, supplied words. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will carry nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can bring in his hand. Here again, the apostle said, "We brought First uh, Timothy six seven. We brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out." Uh, I don't know if Paul was looking at Ecclesiastes five or not. He could also have been looking at Psalm uh, forty nine uh, seventeen. When he dies, he shall carry nothing away, for his glory shall not descend after him. Verse 15, as he came, had come naked from his mother's womb, so he, will he return as he came. He will carry nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can bring in his hand. Again, a reminder that these are truths that even an unbeliever can know. And I think this is why this book is so useful. You, people will agree, yes, I know that I won't carry anything uh, out of this life. And so it's a, a good uh, Simple, basic truths, life's big questions here that uh, even unbelievers uh, cannot deny. This also, verse 16, this also is a sickening evil. Exactly as a man came, so will he go. So what is the advantage to him who labors for the wind? There's our phrase again, striving after wind. Also, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and his sickness and anger. Here is what I've seen to be good, which is beautiful, to eat, to drink, and to see good in all one's labor in which he labors under the sun during the few days, the brevity of life here, the few days of his life which God has given him, for this is his portion. Furthermore, as every man, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to take up his portion and be glad in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not much, he will not, I have the King James in my mind too much, for he will not remember much the days of his life because God allows him to occupy himself with the gladness of his heart. Now take your hymns of grace and turn over to 339, 339 in the hymns of grace. I'm sorry, that's, that's the wrong hymn, what's the hymn number? I've got the same number for this one and the last one. Is that the one we're singing? 135? I'm sorry, 135. I have two hymns, the same one. Oh, worship the king. Okay, we'll sing that. 135, hymns of grace. Let's stand together as we sing.
under the offices of the church. There are two offices found in the church, that of the elder and that of the deacon. And we have been focusing in upon that office of the elder, the one who is to rule, govern, lead in the church. The elder is to be a man who is like a shepherd to his flock, like a, fam a father to his family, and like a ruler towards his community. We've seen together in our study that the biblical idea of elder for the church is to be seen in both a plurality, is to be more in the ideal circumstance, more than one elder, and there is to be a parity. They are equal with regard to ruling in the church. Though there's people, but the leadership in guiding and directing the church, there is a plurality and a parity. And so then we were looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, in which we've been dealing with the qualifications, the qualifications of those men who would be recognized as elders, pastors, bishops in the church. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we start reading in verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement that if a man aspires to the office of an elk overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but to gentle, peaceful, Peaceable, freed from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Those are the qualification of any man who's to be recognized as an elder in the church. And again, as you read through that text, you will see this word must over and over again. It is a necessity that any man who serves in the eldership is a man who meets these qualifications. And some of you may say, boy, am I glad I'm not an elder. <clears throat> Those qualifications, is, it's quite a high standard. But may I say this? Every Christian man is required to meet these qualifications except for that of being apt to teach. Every true believer should long to have these qualifications mark their lives. And then let me say this as well. In nowhere do we find the qualification of perfection. It doesn't say the elder must be perfect. The elder has feet of clay. He has the same temptations that every other Christian man goes through. But these things must mark his life. Though at times he may fail, but that's not his norm. It's not what he is normally in his walk here on earth. So we began looking at these qualifications together. The first one being that of he must be blameless. He must be above reproach. That is, no one should be able to make an accusation against him that sticks is the idea that is expressed here. But then it's almost as though the apostles imagine someone says, but, but exactly what does a blameless man look like? I mean, that's the umbrella over, over which all these other qualifications fall. What is a blameless man? What is it to be above reproach? And, and then Paul begins to set that before us. He must, number one, be the husband of one wife. He must be a one-woman man. And then we also consider those next qualifications. 
He must be temperate. That means sober-minded. He must use sound judgment. He's not to be like the drunkard who doesn't deal with reality, but, but he thinks clearly and uses that sound judgment. He must be one who is prudent. That's how he responds to things. He must be self-controlled. He must be a sensible and disciplined man who, who responds to things biblically. He, he's to be responsible and clear-headed. And so he's to be temperate. He's to be prudent. He's to be respectable. How, how does he conduct himself? It, it, does he live an orderly life? Is he well-behaved? And that behavior is observed by others. And then he says he must be hospitable. He must be given to hospitality. This means to entertain strangers or guests. He has a love for people and a willingness to minister to them. He, ha he has an open door to his home. He, he, he's approachable. And then last, last time we were in this, we also considered that he must be apt to teach. He must have an intelligent grasp of the basic content and doctrines of the Word of God and a proven ability to communicate those truths to others. And that's where we left off the last time we were in this passage of Scriptures. So now we take up those qualities those qualifications that ought to mark the life of an elder in a negative fashion. A negative fashion. He's not to be certain things. And so as we come to consider, hopefully the rest of these, we'll see how far we get, we'll notice first of all, verse 3, he's not to be addicted to wine. The translation is, he, he's not to be a slave to drink. He's not to be a slave to drink. Now, now, since wine was readily available, and it was a common drink of the day, there was a danger of drinking to excess because it was so readily available. And the man must be sure that the wine does not control him. That it does not control him. I mean, you see the importance of that. Who, who knows what a man may say or what a man may do if he's in a drunken place? We talked a little bit about this two or three weeks ago, that that those who find themselves in a drunken stupor do some really strange things, even say some, some really strange things. And an elder who finds himself controlled by the wine could end up with loose lips and say things he ought not to say, or, or find himself not dealing with reality and do things that he ought not to do. Remember, he's to be a man who, who has self-control. He, he doesn't do things to excess. He, he knows the limit. And he doesn't see how close he can get to the limit, but he does everything so that his life is above reproach. Now, every man, every Christian man, has that same responsibility. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 18, Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, writing to the church there at Ephesus. So here is a qualification that this man in our day and age is not an alcoholic, dependent upon drink in order to to get by 
day by day. The next qualification is this, not pugnacious, but gentle. That, that word pugnacious means not given to blows. The elder must be a man who does not have what we might call a hairpin trigger. He, he loses his cool very quickly. He, he has an anger problem. And if you cross him, that, that anger comes out. He's to be marked by gentleness. This word is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. And it describes the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We read these words, Now I, Paul, urge you by the meekness of and gentleness of Christ. Matthew 11 and verse 29, I am gentle and humble in heart. He's a a gentle man. He's not given to outbursts of anger. He's not given to want to go to blows with somebody. Now, When it comes to the truth, this man better be, he better be inflexible. He better not bend when it comes to the truth. He better speak the truth. But when it comes to his own personal rights, when it comes to just having his own way about his opinion or what goes on or what he has to say, he's willing to deny himself. For the interest of others. His mentality, it's either my way, you hear this, my way or the highway. He's willing to listen. He's willing to take counsel. He responds appropriately to criticism. And any man who's in the eldership will face criticism. But but how does he respond to that? Does he find himself becoming stiff-necked? Do you not understand? I am the leader of this place. And you may not like, but this is the way it's going to be because I've decided that. But he's willing to listen. He doesn't think he knows it all. He needs to remember at times even that, that people are made of flesh. They're not made of stones. They have opinions. And sometimes they, they think that what they think is right. And it might be contrary to what you think. So how do you respond to that? A man who takes the office of an elder at times can be slandered or abused. My pastor friends and I, we... We, talk, we hear people talk about elder abuse, and sometimes we say, well, what about people abuse? So how does he respond to that? I mean, over the years, I, I sometimes am, am surprised when someone calls and says, well, we heard you said this, and I never said any such thing. But it's going around. And how do you respond to that? you got to remember, your pastor has feet of clay, and he may want to respond, let me talk to those people. i got a few things I can tell them. I mean, there have been times when we've had meetings where I have written everything down, and I've done that for a reason. Because I know people can misconstrue things that have been said. And I've had people call me who went at the meeting who said, I heard you said at the meeting such and such. Which was never said. It was never even close to being said. And thankfully, 
I, I, I've written everything down. And I could say to the person on the phone, well, here's exactly what I said. And then read it to him. And I, I remember one phone call in particular. I mean, the guy called me, and, and very accusatory. I mean, the guy doesn't even live in the state of Michigan. That's how far word, the word travels. And he says, I heard at your meeting you said such and such and such and such. And I don't think that's right. I don't. And I said, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, wait, wait, wait. Here's what I said. I've got it written down. It's here on my desk. And I read it to him. And bless his heart, you know what he said? I mean, he didn't know me very well, but he said, you're a wise man. And what you said is true. Which I wanted to say, just in my nature, I know. Not that I'm a wise man, but what I said is true. But that's what you face when you're in the ministry. There are accusations that come. How do you respond to that? The elder must not be pugnacious, given to blows, but be gentle. Let's believe the proverb, a soft answer turns away wrath. Realizing, you know what? I have feet of clay, they have feet of clay. And you could make an accusation toward an elder, but does it stick? Is it true? Next, he must be and this sort of goes hand in hand, but he must be peaceable, not contentious, not quarrelsome. He must be averse to fighting. I'll tell you, I so dislike conflict. I really do. It has a way of finding me, but I so dislike conflict. I, I'd rather live at peace. I don't want to fight. I don't want to quarrel. And here we're told a pastor should be a peacemaker. Not an agitator. Not a troublemaker. An elder should be a man who people feel is approachable. They, they need to know that their pastor is one who doesn't seek to simply irritate people. I, I went to, on Tuesday night, my son and I went to the Michigan State-Indiana basketball game. And yes, Dale, Michigan State won. But there I am in Lansing, at Michigan State's field house there. And, and I knew when I got there, I was going to be in the major minority, my son and I. You know, you could probably find us fairly quickly in a sea of white and green. There was these red clothes, you know, because I did wear my red. And, 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 and I knew I was going to somebody else's house. And so why I wanted to cheer, you know, I'm a Hoosier. Why I wanted to cheer for Indiana, I just I, I, I didn't want to act like I was at home by myself watching the TV. I, I didn't want to irritate people around me and so forth. So, so we're sitting there, and, and, and as the arenas begin to get filled up, there's a guy that comes walking up the stairs, and lo and behold, he had Indiana plastered all over him. He had the red and white pants that... Hoosiers wear for basketball games, and he sat right behind me. And I thought, oh, well, at least, at least we have some friends. And once the game got going, this guy starts yelling. And, and, and he, I mean, he, I finally looked at my son, 
And I said to him, this guy's irritating me. I don't know what he's doing with all these Michigan State people. He was just annoying. I mean, I want to stand up and say, listen, I'm from Indiana, I'm from Indiana, but we're in their house. We don't need to be making spectacles of ourselves and, and trying to see if we can stir up a fight with somebody because of the thing. Don't do that. I didn't because I didn't know how he would react. But I seriously, I said, this guy's irritating. I almost took my Indiana shirt off so not to be identified with him. Well, so it is with a man who's to serve as an elder. He, he's not to be contentious. He's not to be irritating. Now, he does need to stand for truth, and that truth can be offensive. And he does need to care for the sheep, and at times, caring for the sheep demands he has to say things that he doesn't necessarily want to say, but for the good of the sheep, he must approach the man or the woman and confront them in their sins. And they may not like that. But in and of himself, he is not to be a contentious man. And then we see that he is not to be a lover of money. He's to be free from the love of money. One man has said it is a perverse corruption of the ministry to be in it for the money. An elder must not be greedy or stingy or simply have financial ambitions. All men are to be free from coveting. But an elder must be free from the love of money and things. Why? Why is that? Well, let me give you two reasons why the elder must be free from the love of money. One is laziness. What do I mean by that? The man may think, for the money I get, I don't need to work that hard. I don't need to labor that hard. For the money I get, I don't need to put this much time into it. Or secondly, if, he has a, if he's a lover of money, he could be kept from speaking the truth lest he offends somebody that may be a generous giver. As we heard this morning, who was it, Latimer, that stood before the king and who was a womanizer and had several wives and he goes after his lustful behavior? A preacher might be vulnerable to that. What happens if I preach this truth and somebody doesn't like it and I know they're, they're generous in their giving and and if they don't give, I may not get paid. And therefore, maybe we'll skip over this passage because I don't want to be a, offensive towards them. Or, or, or a brother or a sister who needs to be confronted about certain areas of their lives that they're not living as they ought. And, and I don't want to be uh, offensive to them. I don't want them to leave the church and take their money with them. I mean, if they want to leave the church and take, keep their money here, okay. But, but I don't want to lose their money. And, and so he might be tempted not to speak the truth. And therefore the Word of God tells us he's not to be a lover of money. His income should not be his driving force. Even in our day, though, there are many pastors who seem to be doing quite well with their many homes and their jet planes and everything else. Not that they can't have those things, but that seems to be the pressing issue of their lives. Timothy tells, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 10, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it, having, war having warnings, having been warned, move away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. 
The love of money can bring about great grief. And you must be careful for any man who serves in the eldership not to be a lover of money. And then there are these last three qualifications. One having to do with the man's home life. One having to do with the man's spiritual maturity. And one having to do with his reputation with those outside the church. So he must be a man who manages his own household well. He must manage his own household well. And he must keep his children under control with all dignity. His family ought to be utmost important to him. There has been many a pastor who give themselves diligently to the work of the ministry at neglecting their family, at the cost of neglecting their family, who look to be successful in the ministry, but their family is in utter turmoil. That man, no matter how well he may preach, no matter how well he may illustrate his sermons, no matter how well he is winsome to the people, if he does not manage his own house well, he's not qualified to be in the ministry. And too many pastors' families have learned to play the part. And they come to church and they pretend that everything's okay. Can't we all do that? We come to church and we pretend like everything's fine. People look at us and say, boy, there's an ideal family. And at the end of the day, their home is falling apart. And so any man who's to serve as an elder, must be an example to the flock with regard to his domestic life. And therefore, he must be a man who learns how to balance his time. To make sure that, that his family gets the time they need And that they're not pushed aside because of the time the ministry is calling for him to be a part of. He must rule his family well. He must be the leader in his home. So that his wife respects him. Can you imagine what it would be to be the wife of a pastor? And you know the pastor is not living as he is telling the people to live. And you have to sit there week after week and listen to him and pretend as though everything is well. Can you imagine the misery of living under that? I recognize that. I I sometimes feel for my wife who listens to this man, but she knows the type of man. She knows him better than anyone else. And if she hasn't gained her respect, then he ought not to be preaching to others concerning the truth of God's Word. And the same with his children. The pastor's wife, the pastor's children do not necessarily need to be Christians. We have no control over that. We give them the Gospel. We pray that they get saved. But the pastor must so live with his family that his children respect him. And his children understand this is the way our house is ordered. And this is what we must do. As long as I'm under this roof with this man, I must be submissive to him. And respect him. And he has shown me that that what he is preaching is real in his life. And it might be good if we're to recognize elders and pastors is that we don't just talk to him, but we talk to her and we talk to the children. 
And we, we see how the children carry themselves. Because how can he manage the church? How can he lead the church if he can't even manage his own family? And we ought never to allow a man to be our shepherd. No matter how, as I said already, winsome and everybody likes him. He's a wonderful, he just has a warming personality. But he's not leading his family. And too many families have gone by the wayside because the man says, well, it happened because I gave myself to the ministry and I neglected my family. And too many men have had to confess that. Well, moving on with these last two, his spiritual maturity. He's not to be a new convert. He's not to be a new convert lest he think more highly of himself than he ought. And he brings shame to the cause of Christ. Verse 6, and not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall away into condemnation occurred by the devil. A new convert may be vulnerable to those things. You must be careful that this man has matured spiritually and his walk with God is mature. And then finally, we read that he must have a good reputation with those outside the church. What do those outside the church think of him? Maybe before you call any man to the eldership, to the pastorate, you should interview people, maybe that he works with. See what they think of him. What, what, what do you think of this man? Or his neighbors? You know, it's interesting. Before, before my son became a state policeman, part of the things he had to do for qualification was to go through an interview process. And part of that interview process included going to my neighbors and asking my neighbors... You know Jonathan that lives across the street? Yeah. Tell us, what what do you think about him? And they went to my neighbors and asked them. They, they, they went to his professors in college and asked them. They went to some of his old bosses and asked them, what, what do you think of this? What, 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 did, what impression did he leave with you? And, and the same might be true with any man who seeks to the office of pastor or elder to go to, what is his reputation? I mean, what would you think if, if you began to just question those people? Went to an old boss and said, what, what do you think of so-and-so? How, how was he when he worked here? Well, man, first of all, the guy, the guy was very lazy. He, he wasn't very diligent in his job. Or, uh, how was he as a neighbor? Well, you know, I mean, he was out. Till late at night, squealing tires. He didn't seem to care about anybody else in the neighborhood. He, oh, yeah, we're going to make him a pastor. You go to what? Uh, you had him in class. You were one of his professors. What did you think of him? Well, man, I, he wanted me to give him more time on an assignment, and I didn't want to give it. I, I said, no, this is the deadline. Man, did he lose his cool. He got upset. He turned red in the face and he yelled at me. Oh, yeah, well, we're, we're thinking about making him one of our pastors. What's his reputation with outsiders? What do they think of him? Oh, these are the requirements. That must, verse 2, must be. Verse 4, he must be. Verse 7, he must have absolute necessity. And you may say, wow, who's worthy of these things? That's what I say when I read them. And my only answer is, this is what the grace of God ought to make every Christian man. Every one of us. And while some may not have the desire to be a pastor... 
And not everyone does. And, and some men may not have the ability to teach. They can't communicate very well publicly. Every one of these others ought to be the, the quality of every Christian man. And only the grace of God working in his heart and the Spirit of God dwelling in him can make a man like this. But it won't be perfect. It won't be perfect. As, as elders and as pastors, we need to be growing in grace and godliness and holiness. But dear people, we need to pray that God would make men like this and then put within them hearts a desire to be pastors and shepherds to God's people for the good and the benefit of the church. That should be our ongoing prayer. Because only God can make a man to meet these qualifications. And so we cry out to him to do so to his glory. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the direction that we receive from your word. And Father, how we pray that as we look around us and see that the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few, Father, you would raise up men who would meet these qualifications and place within them a desire to shepherd and lead your church. We pray that for our own congregation as well as your people around the world. Your church needs pastors. Pastors who will love them and care for them and feed them, shepherd them, rule over them. And so, Father, we would cry that you would make such men in our day. Father, you, we pray that you would help every man here to grow in these areas of character. That, Father, we would be the men that we ought to be, especially when it comes to leading our families that you would help us to lead them aright. It's an awesome responsibility. Sometimes a difficult responsibility. But Father, it, it is our responsibility. And we pray you'd help us. So Father, as we consider these things together, write them upon our hearts. Keep us, we pray, from from lessening them or blotting out some of them so that we might know of your blessings and your presence each time that we gather together as the people of God. For these things we do pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in closing, let us take our hymns of grace once again, turning to 339. 339, rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser things. Rise up, O men of God. 339, hymns of grace. Let's stand together as we sing.